The sermon text for today is Psalm 73, verses 1 through 28. You can find this passage in the Blue Pew Bible on page 847. Listen as I read God's word. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like. Always free of care, they go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain, I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long, I have been afflicted, and every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply, till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down into ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You will destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. Here ends the reading. Good morning. Glad to be with you here today. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, my name is John. I get to serve as the lead pastor here at Elmwood. Uh, I want to invite you to stand for one last time during this series. Uh, today is the last Sunday in the series we've been in looking at Psalm 1. And as you know, if you've been here with us, we have been setting out to uh, practice what the psalm talks about, which is meditating on the instruction of the Lord and letting it uh, saturate our inner beings. 
And so we have, over these weeks, we have been saying Psalm 1 over and over and over again each week. And so this is uh, part of the formative uh, effect that God's Word has on us. And so I'm just uh, really grateful for the time that we have been able to have doing this together. And uh, we get to do it here one more time, although uh, no one's stopping you from continuing to uh, use the little card we handed out with these words on it and continuing to meditate on it. Um, and so we just invite you to continue to do that. But uh, would you say Psalm 1 here with me once more today? Blessed is the one who does not walk and step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. Would you remain standing as we pray? Lord, as we look at the psalm one more time today, we ask that you would be near to us in a special way. Lord, we thank you for the beautiful vision, the picture of the prosperous life that we see in Psalm 1, and we ask that you would um, continue to teach us. Lord, that you would continue to show us what it means to live a life of prosperity and abundance. Lord, we ask that you would not let this series that we've been in, not let this time that we've had repeating Psalm 1 over and over go to waste. God, we believe that your word never goes to waste, and so we're so grateful for the presence and the work of your spirit that takes your word and applies it to our hearts and um, plants it deeply within us. And so we pray that you would, in ways that we don't even know yet, or maybe ways that we wouldn't expect, we pray that you would cause uh, our time together in Psalm 1 to bear fruit. Uh, meet us here today, oh God, we pray. And all God's people said, amen. You may have a seat. Well, as I mentioned, today is the last day in Psalm 1. Uh, what we're going to be doing today is we're going to be looking at really the second half of Psalm 1. We spent the first eight weeks looking at three verses, so we went uh, quite slowly through those verses. And uh, one of the things that I just feel like I've been learning, and I, and I learn this over and over again as you, you know, regularly study and teach the Bible, is that uh, there is no way to exhaust <laughs> what is in the text and every single time, no matter how slowly we go through a passage or through a series, I always just feel like, man, we just barely even scratched the surface of what was here. And uh, I'm just thankful that we've been able to have this time together. And what we're going to be doing is looking at these last three verses, which talk about the uh, way of the wicked leading to destruction. Now, these last couple of verses are, uh, in some ways, a warning for us. So you, you see a very clear contrast that's being set out between the life of the righteous person, that is the life of the flourishing person, the one who delights in God's instruction and who meditates on it day and night, 
and how their life is like a tree planted by streams of water and their lives are fruitful, their lives are rooted, their lives are prosperous. We see all of this, this beautiful picture of the life of prosperity that can be ours in Christ. And then we also see in these last three verses uh, a picture of the wicked person, the person who is uh, living life on the path towards uh, what is complete and utter destruction and ruin. And so those last verses that we have even read aloud here today are something of a warning for us, right? We're supposed to see those verses and say, I don't want to go down that pathway. They warn us against following that path that leads towards destruction. And even though they are a warning, I think they also function in another way as well. I think that these verses function not only as a warning, but also as an encouragement for us. And the way that they function as an encouragement, the reason is because we can look out and see the prosperity of the wicked, as someone would describe it. Those who do not love God, those who do not obey his instruction, we can see all kinds of ways in which they thrive and flourish. And it leaves us sort of with attention. And so this psalm, as we look at uh, verse 6 in particular, where it says, The Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. That's not only a warning for us, warning us against following the path of the destruction, it's also a promise that the Lord watches over the way of those who love and obey him. And those who are living life on this path towards destruction, they will not stand in the final judgment. As I was thinking about uh, where to take us this week, um, I'll, I'll be honest with you, I really wrestled with, with, with this, with what passage to use and, and what to really sort of focus on. You know, there's a lot of different ways you could go when you have the subject of uh, God's justice before you. And what do you, what do you say? How do you, how do you talk about that in a way that's helpful? Uh, and so I really struggled with that. Um, and where I've landed is Psalm 73 that you heard read just a few moments ago. And what I want to do is I want to look at Psalm 73 because Psalm 73 shows us sort of the inner wrestlings of a person who looks out at the world, who sees the prosperity of the wicked, and asks the question, where is God? What is God doing in all this? And it's really just... Uh, the inner wrestlings of a person who struggles with looking out and seeing the prosperity of the wicked. So I want to look at Psalm 73 with you here today. And as we do, uh, the first thing that we see in that psalm is we see the psalmist, who is identified as Asaph, making an observation. And the observation is this. The wicked prosper no matter what they do. That's the observation that Asaph here makes in this passage. Look, starting in verse 3. I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now, it, you can't tell this from our English translation, but the word that's translated prosperity is the Hebrew word shalom, which if you're familiar with that, you know that's a very, very significant, very important word in the Old Testament that's oftentimes translated peace, but it doesn't just mean peace as in the lack of hostility. It means the presence of wholeness, the presence of flourishing, the presence of abundance and prosperity. And so isn't it interesting that the psalmist here, as he's looking at the, at, at the life of the wicked, describes them using the word shalom. The wicked, their lives are prosperous. Their lives are abundant. He goes on to say in verse 4, they have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from common and human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. 
So he sees the prosperity, the shalom that the wicked are experiencing. And they, their lives seem to be going great. <laughs> their lives seem to be going wonderful. And, and he goes on to say that the experience of prosperity that they have, all it seemed to do was turn their hearts further away from God. Verse 6 says, Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts come iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like. Always free of care, they go on amassing wealth. So the observation of the psalmist here is very clear. (laughs) The wicked seem to prosper no matter what they do. And that's in contrast with his life where he says in verse 14, all day long I have been afflicted and every morning brings new punishment. So this is the observation. The wicked prosper no matter what they do. They're free from trouble. They're free from worry. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They amass wealth. Everything seems to be going great for them. Have you ever found yourself able to identify with the words of the psalmist here? Have you ever found yourself asking the question, God, why is it that I look out and it appears as though those who do not love God, those who do not obey his instruction, which tells us how to live life best, how is it that those people who don't care about God's instruction at all, they seem to be flourishing and prospering, and I'm over here trying to do the right thing, doing my best to love and follow you, and my life is difficult. God, why is it that I'm over here doing the best I can to follow you and my marriage is difficult and my relationships are filled with frustration and tension? God, why is it that I'm over here doing the best I can to follow you, to love you, and it feels like I'm constantly living on the edge of a financial cliff and at any moment with any one thing that goes wrong, I'm going to get pushed and fall over the edge? God, why is it that I'm over here trying to do the right thing and parenting is still so stinking hard? God, why is it that I'm over here trying to do the right thing, trying to follow you to the best of my ability, and my job just feels like a soul-sucking, life-draining thing I have to endure every day? My work is not meaningful. My work is difficult. I'm underpaid. It doesn't bring me joy. God, why is it that I look out and, and, and I'm doing the best I can to follow you, to love you, to serve you? And all these different areas of my life seem to be sort of in chaos and disarray. Now, on face value, Psalm 73 seems to completely contradict Psalm 1, doesn't it? Where in Psalm 1, we're told about the righteous person, everything they do prospers. And then Psalm 73 has the righteous person saying, all day long I have been afflicted and every morning brings new punishment. Those don't seem like they're saying the same thing, do they? And then you've got Psalm 1 describing the way of the wicked and how the way of the wicked leads to destruction. And then Psalm 73 says, no, the way of the wicked leads them to prosperity, leads them to shalom, leads them to healthy bodies, 
leads them to lots of wealth and they don't have any of the same common human burdens that I have. And it seems like these things are a complete contradiction of one another, doesn't it? And this is sort of just the experience that we have, right? We can identify with the observation of the psalmist here that we look out and we see that the wicked prosper no matter what they do. But this observation leads to a complaint. It leads to uh, a question is the, is the positive way of putting it. Uh, and the question is this. If the wicked prosper no matter what they do, what good is it to do what's right? Right? If the wicked prosper no matter what they do, and if I'm doing what I can to follow God, to do what's right, and my life leads to difficulty and pain, what good is it to do the right thing? Why should I bother doing the right thing in the first place if this is going to be the outcome of it? And so you can hear that in the words of the psalmist here. Verse 12, this is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. It hasn't been worth it. I've kept my heart pure. I've washed my hands in innocence. I've done all the right things, both externally and internally. And all day long, I'm afflicted, and every morning brings new punishment. Why bother if that's going to be the result of it? Now, I think that this is a question that we can all identify with. This, this question of, okay, God, if this is, if this is the result of it, why, why bother? That's a question that's an instinctual question, right? We don't have to sit around and ponder this to come up with that question. <laughs> we just live life, and all of a sudden we find ourselves asking, like, okay, well, what's the point in all this if this is what I'm going to get out of it? And I think it's important to recognize that this question is instinctual. And uh, I, just, I just love the honesty of the psalmist here, don't you? Um, don't you just love that he just lays it on the table and there's no, you know, like dressing this up in Christian jargon. There's no sort of deflecting through, you know, spiritual truisms of like, well, I know God's in control, so it's okay if I suffer. And like, there's, there's none of that. He's just living in and in a way wallowing in the rawness of real life and the observation that the wicked prosper no matter what they do. And so what good is it to even follow and do the right thing in the first place? That's just an instinctual question that comes up. And I think that uh, it's important for us to recognize that this question, although it's instinctual, and there's nothing wrong with asking this question, there is a danger that is lurking within the question. And the danger of this question of why bother, the danger of that is that it exposes what's inside of our heart. It exposes a belief that we have. Okay? The belief that it exposes inside of us is here, here's what it reveals we believe. If I do what's right, God owes me a good life. That's what, it, that's what it reveals. Now, there is, I, I want to be really careful here. Uh, it's one thing for us to come to God and to ask questions and to grieve over aspects of the life that he's given us. Okay? It is so important that we are able to identify and recognize the areas of disappointment in our life and bring those before God and say, you know, I wouldn't have chosen it to be this way. God, why is my life this way? God, why have you afflicted me with this? God, why have you let my life turn out to be like this? I wouldn't have chosen this, God. And there is a, a legitimate 
critically important place for us as followers of Jesus to recognize those areas of disappointment and to submit them to him in trust, okay? So having this question come up in your mind of, well, what good is it? That question is not in and of itself a bad thing. The danger is when we linger in this question. The danger is when we never can move on from the question, but we get stuck in the question. And when we linger in the question, what it reveals When we linger in this complaint, what it reveals is that God himself is not the goal of our obedience. Does that make sense? When we have this question and we say, God, I've done all the right things. This is the way my life has turned out. Why am I going to bother doing all the right things? It reveals that in the end, what we're, not, we're not actually after communion with God in the first place. We're after his stuff. It reveals that we are viewing our obedience as leverage to be used to get God to give us the life we want. It reveals that we basically come to God and ask the question, we say, okay, God, I followed the rules. I've done what you asked. Now, where's my life? Where's my good life? Now, fix it. Now, do something different. Because if you don't, it's not worth it. And you see, it reveals that, that God himself is not the goal of our obedience. It's having a good life. It's having comfort and safety and security or success or fame or money or possessions or whatever else it is, right? So this question is, is not a bad question for us to ask. It's an instinctual question that comes up. And we say, God, I don't understand. God, why bother? And when we linger there, it reveals that our heart is really set on getting a certain kind of life. Our heart is not set on having God himself. And so there's a danger in this question. Now, here's what I know to be true, because I've, I've spent more time than I care to admit living inside that question. What I know is that that's a miserable place to live. It's a miserable place to be, to look at your life and to come to God and say, God, what good is this? That's a miserable place to live. And I know for a fact that some of you know what it's like to live in that place too. And the good news is that the psalmist here doesn't just give us the complaint, right? We don't just see the question here. We also see how the psalmist leads this to resolution. We see the solution to this. And the solution is this. We bring our complaint into the presence of God. That's what the psalmist does here is he models for us what it is that we need to do in order to see this tension resolved in a way. What we need to do in order not to get stuck living in that question. And the answer, the solution is we bring our complaint into the presence of God. Listen to what he says. Verse 16. This is a great summary of everything the psalmist has said to this point. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. Until I entered the sanctuary of God. When I came into the presence of God, I began to see things clearly. And then he says about the wicked, then I understood their final destiny. So as we bring these complaints into the presence of God, two things are going to happen. Uh, number one, we're going to remember what we actually have. Because the psalmist brings this complaint into the presence of God and says this, verse 21. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. So in other words, he's saying, I, 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 did, I wasn't seeing clearly. I wasn't thinking clearly. My mind wasn't right. I was stuck in this 
sort of weird place where I shouldn't have been. But then in verse 23, it says, yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Verse 28, as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. When you look at the beginning of the psalm, it gives every appearance that it's the wicked who are the ones who are truly prospering. And then by the time you get to the end of the psalm, the psalmist has the clarity to see that's not actually true. And the reason is because the righteous person has something that the wicked person does not have. And that is the presence of God, who is the source of life. And the psalmist is, is just remembering this. And two times in here, says, I'm with you. Then in verse 28, it is good to be near God. We are designed for life in God's presence. And this is what the psalmist is rejoicing, that even though I don't have certain you know, external markers of prosperity in my life, I still have access to the presence of God, which is what I truly need. And so the psalmist here is remembering what it is that he actually has, even though there may be all kinds of things he doesn't have in his life. <laughs> and for us, there may be all kinds of sort of external markers of prosperity or shalom or success or notoriety or wealth or whatever it is that we don't have. We may have all kinds of, a whole list of things that we don't have that we wish we had. But when we bring these things into the presence of God, what we remember is the thing we do have, is we have the presence of God. But not only this, when we bring these things in the presence of God, we not only see, remember what we actually have, we also can begin to see life from his perspective. Listen to verse 18. Surely you place them on slippery ground. He's speaking about the wicked person here. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. So he gets a clear perspective that reminds him that what they are experiencing may look like prosperity externally, but it's not actually true prosperity. It's not actually true shalom. It's a mirage of it. Now, the word picture that's used in Psalm 1, uh, if you're there, uh, look with me in verse 4. It says, Speaking of the wicked, it says, They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, they will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. The picture that's used to describe uh, the wicked person is, is chaff. Uh, I'll give you a homework assignment. Uh, I'm not going to take the time to spell out all of these things here today, but my homework assignment is go home and spend 15, 20 minutes just looking at, sort of making a list of all the different things that are different about the tree and the chaff. Because that's part of what Psalm 1 is designed to do, is to sort of throw up this contrast for us. And so we're supposed to sort of just sit in that and see, oh, the tree is like this. Oh, the chaff is like this. So I want to just encourage you to, to do that sometime this week. But what, 
chaff is, uh, chaff is like, a, it's like a tissue paper thin sort of husk on the outside of a kernel of wheat. And what they would do, especially in the ancient context, is when they were uh, harvesting this, the wheat would have died, and so the chaff becomes uh, really brittle. And so part of the process is that they would take these sort of pitchforks or some tools and throw it up into the air. And as they did so, the, uh, the kernel of wheat, which is far heavier, far denser, uh, falls straight down. And the chaff, that's not really connected to anything, it's just this sort of really thin uh, husk, because it's not connected to anything, because it's essentially lifeless, it just catches the wind and blows away. And so it separates the wheat from the chaff, and you're able to actually take the wheat then and actually use it without having to hand pick all that little stuff off of there, right? So this is, this is the picture of the person who does not love God or follow his instruction, is that they are like this, this lifeless chaff that's useless, it's not good for anything, uh, you, you get rid of it, you throw it away, it doesn't have life in it, it's not rooted, it's not grounded, it's none of that. It's just this thing that is blown away by the wind. And the, the picture that Psalm 1 gives us is that this is what the wicked person is ultimately like. Their quote-unquote prosperity is actually a mirage. It's not true prosperity because they don't have the one thing that they truly need to prosper, and that is nearness to the presence of God who is the source of life. And so, again, even though they may have all the external markers of prosperity as maybe we would define it in modern American culture, even if they don't have those things, because they still have access to the presence of God, they still have a life of prosperity. And on the other side of it, even though you may have those things, you're not prospering necessarily. Right? So this is the picture that's given to us. Uh, Let me just share share with you something that I've been sort of uh, thinking about this week that's kind of challenged me. Uh, In verses... Four and five of Psalm 1, we read this. The wicked are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. Uh, The Bible says that those who do not love God or obey his instruction, uh, all of us for that matter, will one day stand before God and give an account of our lives. And the Bible says that those who do not love God, who do not obey his instruction, they will stand before God They will give an account of their life, and in the end, they will not have anything to stand on. They will have no foundation. There will be nothing there. They won't be able to withstand uh, the judgment, the justice of God. What I've been thinking about is uh, is this, that so often, uh, too often actually, I'll be honest with you, so often when I think about the justice of God, uh, my comfort comes from telling myself, just hold on, they'll get what's coming to them. Have you ever, have you ever thought that? You know, as, as we look around the world and we think, especially having heard Psalm 73, and you, you just think, yeah, you can look around and see there's lots of prospering of those who do not love God or obey his instruction. And part of, uh, part of my comfort has been from uh, comparing myself to them and looking at people and saying, you know, well, um, just hold on, you know, you'll get yours in the end. Now, there's an aspect of that that is, that is that's true, right? God is just. He's not going to let sin go undealt with. He doesn't sweep sin sort of under the cosmic rug to just sort of get rid of it. Uh, he will do what is just. He will do what is right. And yet, that should not be the source of my confidence and the source of my comfort and the source of my hope in the face of 
the justice of God. The Bible says that God himself does not delight in the death of the wicked, so why should I? God doesn't delight when those who are far from him die apart from him, so why should we? So that has been too often the source of my comfort is by looking at other people and saying, you know, don't worry, they'll get what's coming to them. But where our comfort ought to come from as we think about the justice of God, our, our comfort ought to come by, from looking at who God is. Our comfort ought to come by looking at the nature of God, looking, looking at what the Bible says about who he is and what he's like. Our comfort ought to come by looking and seeing his goodness and seeing his mercy and seeing his love and seeing his compassion and his forgiveness and his power and his justice and seeing the, this, the total picture of who he is and then seeing ourselves in relation to him. Our comfort doesn't come by looking at other people and saying, just wait, they'll get theirs in the end. Our comfort comes by looking to who God is and then seeing who we are and asking the question, who am I that I should be given the gift of God's presence? That's where our comfort, that's where our security ought to come from. The Bible says that all of us are born on this path towards destruction that we read about in Psalm 1. It says that from birth, every single one of us don't naturally, our hearts are not inclined to love God or obey his instruction. Our hearts are not inclined to do what is right in his eyes. Our hearts are inclined to do first what's right in our own eyes. And sometimes that works its way out. It expresses itself in very bad behavior. Sometimes that expresses itself in very good behavior. But the point is that our hearts are not naturally inclined to love God or obey his instruction without him intervening without him stepping in and turning our dead, lifeless hearts into hearts that are alive once again. And the good news that we see is that God has made a way. We are all born into this kind of exile. We're born exiled away from God's presence, and unless he miraculously intervenes, the exile that we experience in part now will carry over into eternity, and we will be eternally exiled away from his presence. And remember, he is the source of life. God has made a way for us to regain his presence. God has made a way for us to uh, be in his presence again. And, And the beauty and the mystery of the gospel is that God has done this by taking on human flesh and experiencing injustice. God has made it possible for us to enter once again into his presence by taking on human flesh, by experiencing the worst of what the world has to offer, and by being the victim of injustice. And as he was the victim of injustice, as he suffered and died and was executed as a criminal unjustly because he had done nothing wrong, as that happened, what we're told is that that was actually the very moment when God was purchasing our deliverance. That was the very moment when God accomplished our deliverance and our salvation. And it's through that action of Jesus suffering and dying on the cross that we can be forgiven of our sin. And so we had access to the presence of God and God has done it in the most astonishing uh, way that none of us would have ever thought to do it is by coming and experiencing injustice. And so what the cross demonstrates is that God cares about justice. The cross demonstrates that God cares about justice, that sin will not be undealt with, 
that no one will sort of get a pass, that someone will sort of slip through the cracks, that God will just, you know, let's let bygones be bygones. The cross demonstrates that God cares deeply about justice. He cares deeply about what is just and right and fair. And so often, don't we, uh, we think about injustice and we, we tend to think about the, you know, the people and the situations out there, <laughs> however you might define what that injustice looks like. We tend to define it that way. And we so often forget that the greatest, the true act of injustice is that we have lived in defiance of our creator. And so the injustice is not out there in our world. The injustice is inside of every single one of our hearts as we have lived in disobedience to God. And even in spite of that, God has made a way for us to be in his presence once again. And so we get to uh, remember and celebrate God's forgiveness and his salvation and his justice uh, as we come to the communion table today. Now, uh, one thing I want to do in these last few moments is, I brought my phone up here so I can have a timer. Uh, Psalm 1 is designed in part, we're, we're supposed to read Psalm 1 and have a longing to be like the tree. We're supposed to read Psalm 1 and, and have this deep longing of, God, make me like that tree. God, I want a life that is, that is rooted. I want a life that is fruitful and prosperous. I want the life that is there in, uh, in, in Psalm 1. And so what I want to do is just uh, have, have maybe a more extended time of silence before we come to the communion table um, where we can just sort of sit before God and use this as an, as an opportunity to come before him and say, God, would you make me like that tree of Psalm 1? Would you make Elmwood Church here in our community like the tree of Psalm 1? That together we are built into this deeply rooted, prosperous, resilient uh, beacon of life in our neighborhood. And so I wanna just, uh, I'm just going to set a timer for three minutes. It may feel like an eternity for you, uh, and that's okay. It's good uh, to feel discomfort uh, sitting silently in the presence of God. And so I want to just uh, give some space for us to do that, and then uh, I will pray at the end of that, and we'll uh, come forward and receive communion together. So let's take a few moments of silent confession and reflection and ask God to make us like the tree of Psalm 1.
Merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in our thoughts, our words, our deeds, by the things that we have done as well as by the things that we have left undone. God, we confess that we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved you with our whole mind or our strength. And we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. In your mercy, God, we pray that you would forgive what we have been. We pray that you would help us amend what we are and that you would direct what we shall be so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. Amen.